the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. Redheads. Hebrews chapter 7, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. In honor of God's word, I want to invite you to stand to your feet. So we read this passage together. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by a translation of his name, the king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham." But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Well, this ought to be fun. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would, would teach us a, a very uh, sometimes confusing text, sometimes uh, a text that seems so out of touch with uh, our, our daily reality. I, I pray, Father, you would help us to see just how profoundly relevant this this passage is to our to our lives uh, to our witness and i ask father that you would glorify the name of jesus father as we just sang i just want to speak the name jesus and i pray father that you would through the power of your holy spirit uh help me to do that in jesus name amen you may be seated well of all of the offices of Christ, I would say that his priesthood is perhaps the most unfamiliar to us 21st century American Christians. We are familiar with the concept of Jesus as our Savior. Uh, we're familiar with saying Jesus is Lord. And, and to some degree, uh, we even understand what it means that Jesus is King. We know those things. We know those things because of what they mean to us. We also know those things because of how we share our faith. We know that, that people need to understand that Jesus holds these positions because they certainly play a role in how he would share Jesus with unbelievers. If we're going to speak the name of Jesus to the lost world, what are we going to say? Well, we know that people need a Savior, right? Jesus is a Savior. We know that people need a Savior to save them from sin and judgment. We know that people need a Lord who is above them, someone that they can worship. We know that Jesus is a king, and people need a king because they need authority, someone to bow before. And so those offices fill longings that we all have, that every human that you speak to at some level has. But Jesus is priest. I mean, who needs a priest? Maybe a Catholic uh, for a Catholic wedding or funeral. 
you find me one text outside of Catholicism in, for example, evangelism training that talks about the priesthood of Christ. It even mentions it. Uh, try to find a contemporary book at your local bookstore on the priesthood of Christ. Uh, find me a song. Right? F- find me uh, even a, a sermon specifically on the priesthood of Christ. Now, I'm not saying they don't exist. You'll have to look very hard, however, because they are certainly rare. Now, if you were a Jewish audience, you would have picked up on this. This would have been one of your favorite uh, offices of Christ. A Jewish audience would have understand the vital role of the high priest in their lives. Right? The priesthood of Jesus would have been a huge revelation. This passage would have been, oh my goodness, that's, that's absolutely stunning. The high priest in the Jewish tradition was their mediator between them and God. Now to understand it in our terms, kind of think of him as a, a defense attorney, sort of. Right? He's offering up uh, plea bargains, a prayer, and animal sacrifices for the sake of the people before God. He stands between them. But to us, it feels like a foreign reality. Well, as strange as it may sound, right? and this is going to sound very odd after reading the passage, as strange as it may sound, uh, the priesthood of Christ may be one of the most important doctrines that we have in the 21st century especially as it concerns missions and ministry. It may be one of the best tools that you have to reach your neighbor for Christ with the gospel, as well as to, in your own heart, find joy. Uh, My my desire is is to be a worker for your joy, And, and this passage certainly helps me to accomplish that job. Well, we're living in a very strange new world, to a little Star Trek reference, a strange new world that has left most Christians, I think these days, disoriented and clueless, especially when it comes to how in the world we share our faith in this culture. The story in Carl Truman's important book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, is all about the reality in which we are in. And in that book, he shows us that a world has not become like it is overnight. In fact, we are simply arriving at the destination that we've been on track for for well over a hundred years. This is the world that Frederick Nietzsche, the atheist philosopher, predicted. And here we are. Well, what's left of the Western church is now left with the question of how do we share the gospel in this culture? How do we communicate Christ in such a way that people are going, well, yeah, he's somebody that I need. Because when we start, what we were trained to do is to say, Christ is the answer for your sin. But but what do you do when people are going, I don't even believe in sin. What do you do when you say, well, you're a sinner who needs Jesus, and they find being called a sinner absolutely offensive? Instead of confessing that truth, people are more prone to simply deny sin or, or to push it down within themselves. Look at our culture today. What happens when individual sin is relevant according to the individual self? What happens when it becomes common acceptance for a man to win a woman's swimming competition? That's normal. Or when a Supreme Court nominee refuses to define what a woman is in confirmation hearings? When did it become offensive to wear a Jesus Saves t-shirt in public. I read this uh, just this week. 
maybe you saw it too, about the man who was asked by uh, security mall police. This is in the Mall of America, Minnesota. I thought the picture was ironic because it says on the green banner, welcome. But in the Mall of America, Minnesota this week, this man was asked to take his shirt off that says, as you can see, Jesus saves on the front of it because by wearing it, he was offending shoppers. And he was asked by these, these uh, mall officers, you can hear the video, he is asked to either remove his shirt or to leave the premise. That was this week. That was in this country. Welcome to the strange new world we now inhabit. This is why some Christians are suggesting that, that maybe the church just needs to lay low and hunker down until we get through this, this strange time. Maybe these days will pass. Well, do you think Jesus would tell us to do that? Do you think Jesus would do that? And here is where we enter the priesthood of Jesus Christ. In order to proclaim Jesus to this very strange new world, we have to first look back at a strange old world when kings and priests walk the earth. So let me show you what I mean here from Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, this book, the, every time I sit down and I first read the text, I read this text and I'm going, okay, this ought to be interesting. And then the more I study the text the more and more relevant it becomes. And I'm just like stunned and thinking to myself, maybe the book of Hebrews is the most relevant book we have in the New Testament as it addresses our strange new world. Well, as you will recall, back in chapter 5, the writer of Hebrews um, is, is about to instruct his readers on the priesthood of Christ in the order of this strange character named Melchizedek. And, and he is uh, about to go into some detail, but he's kind of looking around, and he sees glass eyes everywhere, and so he pushes the pause button. And we get chapter 6. He says, I have so much that I want to tell you, but you're not able to hear it because you're still on spiritual baby food. And the stuff I need to tell you is steak and potato truth. So he says to his readers, look, I need you to grow up a little bit. I need you to press on to maturity. I need you to take hold of the promises of God's faithfulness in Christ. I need you to stop drifting in your faith. I, I, I need you to stop allowing the possibility of the world's offense towards you to not bother you so much that you're thinking about maybe you shouldn't have become a Christian after all. And so he goes through all of that in chapter 6, and so here in chapter 7, he releases the pause button. He's like going, okay, now here's what I wanted to tell you. And then you read it and you go, well, no wonder. No wonder he said this is steak and potatoes. Uh, this is the, the meat and potatoes of the priesthood of Christ. Well, let me just kind of summarize the argument that he makes up front. That way we have kind of a, a running dialogue with, with the rest of the message. So let me give you just the summary of the argument of verses 1 through 10. It goes something like this. Jesus is a high priest. But he is not like the high priest that descended from Levi in the Jewish line. Jesus is a high priest more like this guy named Melchizedek, who was both a priest and a king. right? And he was greater than the priesthood of Levi. And his priesthood actually lasts forever. Because in Levi, it was person after person, and they died and were replaced, and died and were replaced, died and were replaced. Jesus is resurrected forever. And so to show this, 
the writer makes several comparisons between Jesus and, and this ancient priest named Melchizedek. And, and, and in these comparisons, we find ways to connect the people in our strange new world to Christ. Let me show you what I mean. First, we have to go back to the, the original uh, text in Genesis chapter 12. The first time we meet this mysterious priest king in Genesis, is in Genesis 14, after Abraham has defeated a, a group of kings, Canaanite kings, who have come and have taken his, his uh, nephew Lot captive and stolen his possessions. You remember at one point they decided to go their separate ways and, and split everything that, that uh, they had. And now half of that is gone because these kings have taken Lot and his possessions as their spoil. Here's the passage, Genesis 12, 17-20. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out and met him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, there he is, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Well, that is exactly what he is alluding to, the writer of Hebrews, in verses 1 and 2. Let's read that. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also the king of Salem, that is the king of peace. So this Melchizedek blessed Abraham back before he was Abraham, when he was Abram, and in turn, Abram tithed him 10% of all the spoils that he actually brought back because they, they returned, they took the spoils that had been stolen from them, and while they were at it, they took a little extra, you know what I'm saying? To, that's what you do to show uh, your victory. And so a tenth of these, Abraham gave to this Melchizedek guy. Now, that might not like, seem like much of a story. Like, going, okay, I can see where we're going here. I mean, it's just, you're going, so what? Well, here's the thing. The writer of Hebrews makes this transaction an apologetic for Jesus. Now let me show you what I mean. The first comparison the writer makes is between, between Jesus and Melchizedek is in his name and in his title. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. He was also the king of Salem which when translated means he is the king of peace. Peace being the word shalom. So you put it together and he is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Both of which are ultimately true and realized in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Well, to say that Jesus is a king means that he has a kingdom. To say that Jesus is a king means that he has subjects by which he rules over. But, but Jesus' kingdom is not like the kingdoms or the empires or the nations of the world. His is a, is a kingdom marked by righteousness and peace that he gives to his subjects. Uh, this is why uh, I, I harp a lot. You've heard me talk about Christian nationalism. 
hate Christian nationalism. In fact, I feel like it's the greatest heresy in the American church today. Because what it tries to do is equate the kingdom of God with party politics. That's what's happening today, by the way, in, in Russia. The Russian Orthodox Church, the leadership of that church, fears Putin more than they fear God. Listen, Jesus will not allow any political party to claim him as their own. He's not a mascot for the right or the left. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Matthew 6.33 is a good word to the church that wants to combine Jesus and politics in the sense of American politics. Seek first the kingdom of God. And what? His righteousness. His righteousness. And, and, and so we're talking about a, a king of a different sort of kingdom. Now, here's why this is so significant to us today. If I had to describe the condition of most Americans these days, it would be with this one word, restlessness. Restlessness. People today are deeply, deeply unsatisfied with their life. People are unsatisfied with who they are. That's why we, we in our culture love the idea of being able to create our own identity. Identify as this. Identify as that. It is our, it, it, what it is is an attempt to make ourselves something better, I believe, than what we, we truly feel that we are. What people don't realize, however, is that by searching for righteousness and peace, they actually find what they're looking for. Or another way to say it is they're searching for righteousness and peace in the wrong things. And if you search for them outside the king of righteousness and peace, you are never going to find them. Therefore, you shall never be satisfied. Now, you may not think that people today are searching for those things, right? You say, Man, I don't know that anybody's really searching for righteousness and peace by all of this. But I can, sure, I can assure you that they are. Because God has made us to be satisfied in Him alone. And, and so all of our searching is a searching for what we cannot find outside of Him. And so all of this is, 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 a, is a search, namely for righteousness and peace, which are, by the way, the keys to happiness. And while people in our culture may not respond today to being told that they are sinners, there's one thing that you can count on for certain to be true. Everyone, everyone ultimately wants to be happy. All, all this identity... Formation is an attempt to find something missing. Something's wrong. It is ultimately, it is ultimately a search for happiness. We need to understand that. We're so quick to judge and, and not see that this, this, this poor soul is searching for happiness. The Bible being much more spiritually attuned to the human condition refers to this longing that we, we desperately desire as shalom. Shalom. Peace. What it is is a desire to flourish. A, a desire to be satisfied. A desire to, to be at rest. Peace. And Jesus is the king of that. He's the king of shalom. And that's who everyone is seeking whether they realize it or not. Because with peace, right, comes a, a weight of, of restfulness. With peace comes a way of rest because we're no longer searching for that which we 
feel like we need because we have found it in Christ. We all want peace at every level in our life. We all want peace. We all want, we want peace among the nations. We want peace in our society. We want peace in our church. We want peace in our personal relationships. Most of all, we, we want inner peace in ourselves, right? We want to be at rest. We want to flourish within ourselves. And you will never meet a person who does not have that longing within them. Everyone, even the suicidal person is desperately seeking peace. And this is the peace that can only be realized through what the Bible calls righteousness. Righteousness means being right with God. It means being right with other people. And it means being right within yourself. So it carries, the word righteousness carries the idea of justice. They go hand in hand together. You can see how uh, peace and, and righteousness rely on, on one another to work, right? You can't have peace without being right within yourself, right? You can't have peace in a community with injustice running amok. So they go hand in hand. And so what happens when you take righteousness out of your desire for peace is well you turn to every means necessary to try to make you happy within there's got to be a way there's got to be a way there's got to be something we're not happy with the person we are born to be so we remake ourselves we redefine ourselves and that is the world, the strange new world we're living in. We're not happy with the person staring back at us in the mirror. And so we redesign re re ourselves. Maybe it's just simply an image we try to pull off on Instagram or Facebook. We're, we're not happy with the person we are, so we numb the pain. Uh, or we keep seeking happiness through some other possible means outside of Christ. Maybe sex will make me happy. Maybe money. Maybe the latest gadget will make me happy. Maybe getting more Facebook friends will do it. Maybe success in my career. Maybe the raise. Maybe academic or athletic achievements. Maybe religious achievements even. Maybe I'll change my sex. Maybe I'll change my spouse. Maybe I'll change my career. Maybe I'll change my church. Maybe I'll change my look. Maybe I'll change my geography. Just get a fresh new start somehow. The problem is, is wherever we go, there we are. The person who says that after I, I changed my, my gender, I found peace I'm afraid that, that basically they have to say that because there's no going back. The point for this is, for missions, is, is simply this. In this strange new world, perhaps the best place to start when we communicate the gospel is not with, you are a sinner, therefore you need to repent and be saved, and that's true, by the way. I'm not saying you leave that out. I'm just saying maybe that's not the best starting place in this culture. Maybe we need to even go prior to that. You go, what's prior to that? Well, prior to that is Genesis. Prior to that is the way that God originally designed this and how he designed this to be satisfied by him alone and how that was shattered by the fall. Perhaps it's better to start with the universal longing that everyone has for happiness, for righteousness and peace. It's at the core of all of us, right? Jesus alone is the king of righteousness and peace. Therefore, he alone is the one who satisfies. He alone provides us with the perfect righteousness that satisfies our desire for peace, right? Our peace with God, our peace even with one another, and definitely our peace within ourselves. He gives us his righteousness and his peace. In John 14, 27, Jesus said this, Peace I leave with you. Whose peace? My peace. My peace I give to you. 
Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. All right, think about that. Jesus says, I don't give you the way, the, the peace the way the world does. The world says you want to be peaceful, you need this, you need this, you need this, because you're missing something. Jesus says, no, I, I'm the only thing that you're missing. And, and your peace, after you go after everything, you will discover that your heart is still troubled and you still struggle with fear. I don't give you peace like that. I give you a peace that will take those things away. Now, if you're still not so sure that we should start the gospel, we proclaim with the idea of the universal lack of, of peace or the desire that everyone has to be happy, then maybe we should consider the way Jesus did it. The way Jesus communicated himself with people. So think about Jesus and the woman at the well. Right back in John 4. Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well. It's the heat of the day. You know the story, right? It's the heat of the day. She goes there every day to draw water. But she avoids uh, the morning time when it's much cooler because that's when all the stares and whispers of the other women are present. So she goes in the heat of the day. And she's a bit of an outcast. She's had five previous husbands now living with a guy. Uh, today, we might, you know, same person, we'd be like, well, you know, you do you. But, but in, in Jesus' day, she was an incredible outcast, and so Jesus happens to love outcasts. It's his thing. And so he seeks her out. And when he gets to the well, he says to her, why you give me something to drink? It's hot out here. And she's taken back by that because Jews don't ask Samaritans for anything. And, and Jesus says, ask me and I will give you water. I'll give you the water to drink. And, and the water I give to you, you, will, you, if you drink it, you'll never thirst again. <laughs> Interesting. Instead of saying to her, you know, uh, you've had five husbands. You're, you're living with a guy now. Uh, what you need to do is, is to confess that you're a sinner and repent. Everyone knows you're a sinner. Everyone's talking about it. You know it too. No, instead of starting there, he goes deeper, right? He goes deeper in to the heart of the matter. He says, go get your husband. She says, I don't have one. And he says, I know. And then he tells her her whole life story. Right back to her. And basically what he's saying is you're trying to find your, your, your peace, your rest in relationship after relationship. And the irony is, is that you are more restless than you've ever been. Your life resembles this water. And you have to keep coming back every single day to get more because you're not satisfied. But what I want to give you is, is a different kind of water which will satisfy your thirst forever. You see, where, where, where did Jesus start? With her desire, with her thirst. Tapping into the fact that you're not satisfied. Jesus' method and message started at the point of her soul's greatest need sin is our attempt to find happiness outside of god you remember what happens after that she goes to town right she used to be hiding from everybody then she walks right into the middle of the town now as an evangelist and she says come meet a man you guys got to come come meet a man who told me everything i've ever did right she knows she's sinned She's fully aware. And yet here she is saying, he told me everything. And he accepted me. He offered me living water. He didn't crush me. Isn't that beautiful? And because he is an eternal priest, this Jesus, he can satisfy our, our souls forever. He is the king of righteousness 
Therefore, he can supply us with righteousness. And he's the prince of peace, the king of peace, which through his righteousness we find satisfaction for our souls. Look at verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. Unlike the priesthood of men that descended from Levi, Jesus is God without beginning or end. Right? Man is, is finite, which means that sin is finite. Jesus is infinite, which means that his grace is infinite. That's why God's grace always trumps our sin. Every time. But let's consider another reason I believe that we need the priesthood of Jesus in this, this strange new world. First of all, it, it gives us the tool to share our faith in a way that begins with, with people's desire for peace and righteousness that is fulfilled in Christ alone. All right, let's consider the next. Look at the passage, beginning at verse 4. Now just think how great he was. He's, he's talking about this guy named Melchizedek. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the rec law requires the descendants of Levi, who became priests, to collect the tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they are also descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descendant from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises, and without doubt the lesser is blessed by the greater. In one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One even might say that Levi, I love this, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Now, I know that's rather confusing, right? But the best way I, I know to communicate this, and, and this is perfect in light of this week, right, is to say, when it comes to high priest, Jesus is the goat, right? Jesus is the goat. Are y'all familiar with that phrase? Apparently not. You're like, oh, no. Jesus is the goat. <laughs> no, Jesus is the goat. You know, what does the goat stand for? Okay, so you know, greatest of all time, right? Tom Brady, retired because the Cowboys did their thing to him. He finally retired. Jesus, uh, Jesus not quite. Tom Brady is referred to as the goat, right? The greatest of all time. Now, Melchizedek here is used here as a type uh, or a picture of Jesus. And so since the writer of Hebrews is talking to Jewish converts who they believe that Abraham was the goat in Judaism, right? Uh, Abraham's the goat. He's the founder of it all, right? He's the founder of the Jewish people. And, and, and what the writer of Hebrews does is says, man, Abraham's not the goat. Heck, Melchizedek was so great that Abraham even tithed to him and was blessed by him. Now, according to the law, the priest that descended from, from Levi, who was Abraham's grandson, by the way, were to collect tithes from the, the people of Israel, right? Wouldn't that be something? Instead of passing the plate, you know, it's like, I'm here. Like, you know, I show up at your door, tithe time. Hmm. No, okay, so, so they're, they're required to give in order to keep the upkeep of, of the temple uh, to tithe to Levi. Now, this Melchizedek guy was a descendant, uh, not, excuse me, was not a descendant of Levi or Abraham, and yet Abraham is paying him a tithe. Thus, Abraham, who is, who is the father of the Jews, who, who the Jews thought was the goat, right? Abraham 
recognize this Melchizedek guy is greater than I am. And, and so, I mean, he's greater than, than the promise. He's greater than, than my, my own descendants that would come. In fact, it says that uh, the, the greater blesses the lesser. And this Melchizedek guy blesses Abraham. So notice the argument. His second point is that Melchizedek was the one who blessed Abraham and not the other way around, right? And since the lesser is blessed by the greater, that means that this Melchizedek guy is, is greater than Abraham. Third argument goes something like this. This is, this is awesome. He says, since Levi and the priesthood that descended from him, therefore descended from Abraham, because Levi was his uh, grandson, then, then Abraham is the patriarch that acted on the behalf of his descendants. So it's basically saying that Levi paid the one who was supposed to, you know, the high priest that was supposed to collect the tithes, he, through Abraham, tithed to, to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus. You, you see the argument? So since the whole point of Melchizedek was to give a picture of the priesthood of Jesus, Jesus, therefore, is the goat. Not Abraham, not Levi. Jesus is the greatest of all time. That's the point. If you follow all that, I mean, it's really a brilliant line of reasoning. Right? By the way, Christianity is not just some, some fairy tale. You have to check your brain out at the door in order to believe. It's incredibly rational for those who are willing to put forth the effort, it is the, the most reasonable explanation for all the big questions that keep people up at night. Jesus becomes the answer to the meaning of life. What is the purpose of mankind? To glorify Christ forever. What is the point of, of, of history? What happens after we die? What's wrong with the world? Is there such a thing as justice? Is there one universal truth? Is there a point to all the suffering in the world? And Christianity is the only, provides the only reasonable answer to all of those questions. Every single one of them. They all revolve around the truth that Jesus is the greatest of all time. He's the answer, which brings me to the big idea of the passage, right? The big idea. We're all building up to this. Got to get ready. The priesthood of Levi was a priesthood of the law. People had to tie to them out of obedience to the law. The priest made sacrifices to atone for the sins of people who had broken God's law. Yet they had to keep coming back, just like the woman at the well. They had to keep coming back because the blood of, of animals could not remove the stain of guilt. Jesus' priesthood is not a priesthood of law. His was a priesthood of grace so many people outside the church and for that matter many inside the church think of Christianity as just another religion right? to be a Christian means you have to conform to a, a certain set of rules in their minds which is just more laws and so unknowingly they're associating Jesus with the priesthood of, of Levi by law. Right? Pay your dues. 
make certain sacrifices. Do these things if you want to be right with God. You have to do these things. That's the salvation by religion. Righteousness and peace are achieved by religion in that mindset. But here's the thing is God will never accept our religious deeds. He will never accept our religious deeds. In fact, he is offended by them. Isaiah 64, 6 says that our righteous deeds are filthy rags. Now, I don't mean to be graphic here, but the reference is used uh, of, of feminine products that have been used up. That's what God thinks of our religious efforts, our righteous deeds or that before him. And the reason God will not accept our, our good, our religious deeds, is because it makes God to be our debtor. God, I did this. God, look at what I did. Now, God, you owe me for what I did. You owe me eternal life because I did all of these things. It turns God into our debtor. God is never a debtor to man, ever. All he owes any of us is his judgment. We all deserve hell. But instead, God in his grace paid our debt through the death of his son. What religious deeds do you think need to be added to the death of Jesus on the cross? Think of Jesus on the cross and think, you know what else that needs? It needs my doing this or that. And you can see how offended God would be. What are you going to add to the death of Jesus? The whole idea is beyond offensive. No wonder the Bible used such graphic images for our, our righteous deeds. They're filthy rags. The point of Hebrews 7, the big idea here is that Jesus is greater than religion. He's from another priesthood. He's from a whole other order. He is from a priesthood that administers blessings of grace. He gives us his righteousness and his peace. Think about this. Go back to the first time we met Melchizedek, the guy that represents Jesus. Go back to the blessing that he gave Abraham. I don't know if you caught this before. Let me read you Genesis 12, 18 and 19 again. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him. Interesting, isn't it? He blessed him with bread and wine. Right? Well, what's that pointing to? I think we're pretty clear on that. Right? Those are the same things that Jesus used to express his, his flesh and his blood that was broken and poured out for us at the cross during the Last Supper. The point is this. Melchizedek blessed Abraham with bread and wine. The greater blessed the lesser. It's a symbol of pure grace. Jesus, the true high priest, allowed his flesh to be torn, his body to be pierced, his blood to be poured out, is the only sacrifice for sin that you could ever need. There's no need for any of your religious offerings. Right? Jesus paid it all. That, that is the message that we have to tell the world. That's the message. We must get past their defenses based on lies that Jesus is just another religion and there's a bunch of stuff you got to do if you want to follow him. 
We've got to get past the idea that the church is filled with anger and judgment, but it is a place of grace. We have to communicate to this strange new world what Jefferson Bethke wrote when he said this, quote, the Bible, the Bible's in a, a rule book. It's a love letter. I'm not an employee. I'm a child. It's not about my performance. It's about Jesus' performance for me. Grace isn't there for some future me, but for the real me. The me who struggled. The me who is messy. He loves me in my mess. He's not waiting until I clean myself up. And Jesus said the truth will set us free. But here's the irony. The world thinks that freedom means the freedom to define ourselves however we want. To be who we want to be. To do what we want to do. To sleep with whoever we want to sleep with. It's not freedom. It's another form of bondage. Right? It never sets you free because you will never experience righteousness and peace in your heart. You know what it is? It's exchanging one prison cell for another and calling it freedom. The autonomous self is never a free self because it always demands that everyone else recognize you as the self that you have made yourself to be and thus, ultimately, you're under the control of the opinions of others. One of my favorite things about following Jesus is I get to drop the act. Right? Admit that I'm not good enough. Walk in freedom. That's really, that's good news. It is really good news. What, uh, we are, we, we are God's good news people when we are genuinely set free by the truth of the gospel, right? The gospel doesn't make, listen to me, the gospel doesn't make us righteous. Did he just say something heretical? The gospel doesn't make us righteous. The gospel declares us righteous in spite of our unrighteousness. It credits Jesus' righteousness to our account which is, gives us an incredible sense of peace, right? If the gospel makes us righteous, then it's not good news. At least it's not to me, because I would be in serious trouble, because apparently if it was to make me righteous, it didn't work. It hadn't worked on most of us. We still, we still struggle with sin, right? But if it declares me righteous in spite of my unrighteousness, well, that's very good news indeed. It's like this. It's, it's kind of like having an overdrawn account in your bank, but you're overdrawn by some astronomical number, some ridiculous number, and you're gathering fees every day. And at the exact same time that your bank account is in the, in the negative, uh, your, your, your debts are just compounding and piling up. You're so far in debt that uh, you're about to be sent to prison if you don't pay up. Then one day, you check your balance. And you discover that your name is now attached to some billionaire's account. <laughs> Sweet, right? Uh, you have free access now to this billionaire's account. Right? It's not your money, but it kind of is, you know, because you can use it. Our righteous deeds, our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. We are in debt so far down that we could never in a million years repay it. And yet, when we look at the account of our righteousness, we see that our name has been attached to Jesus' account. And we're going, <laughs> I'm rich. It's not me. It's not even mine. 
It's not my righteousness. My righteousness is filthy rags. His righteousness is applied to me. What a beautiful thing. And if we're honest about that, then we come alongside of the broken and lost people, you know, instead of being above them. We're not above anybody. We're, we're by some crazy, crazy luck attached to Jesus. What did we do? Somehow we won the lottery and we didn't even play. He did it all. We have the tendency, I think, to, to see ourselves as, as better than we are. The, the, the fact of the matter is, is even as Christians, we owe everything to what he did. And so how do we look down at, at other people? I think sometimes we have the tendency um, to, to think like that. And, and, and instead of thinking in terms of this strange new world uh, as our opportunity to go and to minister to the needs of, of people who are starving for peace and happiness and righteousness, and here we are with the, with the food. We think to ourselves, man, this world is such a, a rotten, horrible mess, and it is. It's a mess. But we think to ourselves, you know what? I mean, I just, I believe that Jesus is coming soon, and I do believe that. I believe Jesus is coming soon, and, and I can't wait to get out of here. And there's some truth to that, but the Bible says that the reason Jesus is slow in coming, we talked about this last week, is because he wants everyone to come to faith. That's why we're still here. So I got to thinking about that, you know. We get, uh, we, we Christians, we get all tied up in this, this uh, end times thing. And especially right now, when we look at a strange new world, uh, we have a tendency, I've, I'm reading it all over the blogs, everybody's talking about, this is it, man, this is the end. Get ready, Jesus is coming soon. And we sometimes have the tendency, when thinking about end time stuff, to get bogged down in stuff like details, you know, and, and the dates, and uh, events is happening. Oh, man, you know, uh, let's see if I can find a balloon from China in the book of Revelation. We get bogged down into to events and millennial views and rapture debates. What if this? What if while we're waiting for the second coming of Christ, God wants us to look for the next coming of Christ? Huh? Isn't that the second coming? Not exactly. You see, Jesus shows up all the time. Jesus shows up all the time when we're looking for him. He shows up every time the Spirit opens our eyes to the reality of the world around us. He shows up on any given day. And in the context of the second coming, in the context, speaking about the second coming, Jesus said this in Matthew 25, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Then the righteous, the righteous, those who have been imputed with righteousness, will answer him saying, Lord, when is it we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king, the king, the king of righteousness and peace will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You did it to me. 
What if the next time Jesus comes to you, he comes as a person in need? We're always looking up. We're always looking up. But Jesus seems to suggest, is I, instead of always looking up, I will come. But in the meantime, look around. Look around. Maybe what you might see as an interruption is actually an invitation. Invitation from Jesus. Jesus himself in the form of an interruption. Perhaps Jesus wants to minister his presence to the world through you and me. And perhaps Jesus wants us to minister to him, to him by ministering to the world's broken people. Not judging them, not running from them, not writing blog posts to put them down. To minister to the world's broken people. Perhaps that is all it really takes to shine the light of Jesus in this strange new world. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this this ancient text about some guy named Melchizedek. It was a priest and a king that was a forerunner, a picture of the eternal priest and king. The king of righteousness and peace. The priest who administers that righteousness and peace to a people. Father, we, we, we know this world is broken. We know that it's, it's, it's so sinful. We know that people shake their fist towards the heavens. We know that the people uh, are, are offended simply when we say Jesus alone saves. But Father, in the midst of that, in the midst of that, the truth remains that these same exact people are in their deepest hearts longing for the peace and the righteousness that we have found in Christ. And so help us to pray. Help us to pray for the lost. Help us to pray, Father, that that these same people would know Christ. Help us, Father, not to respond by uh, shaking our own fists back at them. But let us use our hands to simply point to the cross. To the point to the one who died for his enemies. The one who provides the righteousness we need. Father, so many people are trying to do righteousness themselves and find the peace, this, this peace that is so elusive. Every person that, that makes our skin crawl It may be crawling because we're simply not aware that what they're doing is because they don't have the peace that we have. And so I pray, Lord, help us as your people. Help us, Father, to to look. We want to look up. We know you're coming soon. We long for you to come soon. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until then, help us to look around. Help us to look and see the needs of people. Help us to look and see the broken people. Help us to see the people that are are in their addictions are looking for peace. Lord, we, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Father, that 
you have imputed your righteousness to us. You have declared us to be righteous in Christ. Not in our own, but in Christ. And so help us, Lord, to remember that our righteousness is, is, comes through Christ alone. It's nothing that we have ever earned or even began to earn. Our righteousness is filthy rags. So help us not to look at this world and broken people and think that we're more righteous than they are. When, when all we have is grace freely given. So, Father, we, we just ask now that you would help us, Father, to, uh, to take this word, take it to heart, uh, take it to the streets, uh, take it to our, our families, our workplaces, our neighborhoods. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.